Hello and welcome. You are listening to Desperate Acts of Capitalism, a podcast about money, marketing, and how it all goes wrong. Join us on our magical journey through a wonderland of burning money. I'm Evan Swope. And I'm C.T. Kelly. Alright, alright. I've got some good stuff for you today. I'm excited. You, you might be able to guess this one. Okay. Quibi? <laughs> Quibi? Yeah, no. Quibi 2! <laughs> Ty Warner did not meet such great success without hitting bumps in the road. After working as a sales rep at Dakin Toy Company for roughly a decade, he was fired for selling his own competing products alongside those of his employer. In retrospect, that turned out to be a great, albeit less than ethical, decision that allowed him to humbly launch his namesake company, Ty, from the basement of his own home. Just last year, Warner narrowly escaped a prison sentence for tax evasion after he was caught stashing over $100 million in a secret Swiss bank account. He voluntarily paid a civil penalty of $53 million in addition to his back taxes, while at the same time lamenting, quote, I never realized the biggest mistake I ever made in my life would cost me the respect of those most important to me. The government? (laughs) The government doesn't... The IRS doesn't respect me anymore, Evan. Why even live? We thought you were cool, man. Man, come on! We even invited you to the clam bake. <laughs> now you have to give us your back taxes. <laughs> At first, I thought you said Time Warner, like no, Time no, Warner no. Cable, like that was a man. Yeah. <laughs> please, <laughs> please call me Time. Mister Warner Cable was my father. <laughs> With a net worth estimated at two point five billion dollars, however, Ty Warner remains one of the richest businessmen in the world. And his indiscretions notwithstanding, his approach to business offers some valuable lessons. I think more than any topic we have covered on this podcast, this story is the most rife with lessons. Because it was in that basement that Ty Warner would create a product whose name, to this day, is associated with rampant consumerism, the dangers of speculation bubbles, and the fundamental instability of capitalism itself. It was in that cramped little room that Ty Warner would create the Beanie Baby. <laughs> I, I, I had a suspicion. <laughs> this is not a story that can be told in order. The only way this story makes sense is with the benefit of hindsight. Damn near every desperate act we have covered so far could be seen coming from miles off, often flanked by troubadours waving red flags. Yeah. But I don't think anyone could have foreseen what Beanie Babies would lead to. So let's start at the end. What did Ty Warner learn from all of this? 1. The importance of simplicity. First, Beanie Babies were deceivingly simple. The key, Warner once told People Magazine's Joni Blackman, was that Ty purposefully understuffed the toys with small PVC beads. Quote, At first, everyone told me I was cheap, Warner noted. They didn't get it. The whole idea was that it looked real because it moved. Which, maybe? I mean, yeah. the elephant was blue and yeah. tiny. Right. I never really thought it was real, but it's it definitely gave the product a certain charm, like, and it made it unique. So, like, instead of their usual stuffed animal that's very like stiff and overstuffed and stuff, this is more like limber and you can move yeah, it around. Yeah, you can pose it and stuff. Mm. By comparison, other stuffed toys on the market were stiff and rigid, offering Beanie Babies a delightfully easy way to differentiate themselves while allowing for lower costs. Mm. This decision, in turn, enabled Warner to sell his first Beanie Babies for a low price of $5 apiece. He elaborated to people, quote, At that time, there wasn't anything in the $5 range that I wouldn't consider real garbage. 
<laughs> Look at this tiny stuffed dog. Pathetic. <laughs> All right. Don't give me this trash. <laughs> that is not to say that this approach can be applied to any product. Yeah. But for investors and entrepreneurs, it is worth pondering how anything we are doing at any given time can be simplified. It's no wonder, then, that Bill Gates once said, The best advice he ever received from Warren Buffett is to keep things simple. A mantra Buffett follows in everything from clearing his calendar to analyzing whether a particular business is of worthy investment. Mm. Warren Buffett is like the one guy that knows what he's talking about when it right. comes to all that shit. Yeah. It's like every other angel investor or VC guy. Something like, if you look at the actual numbers, yeah. it's mostly a shell game. Like right. it's, you're gambling. Right. Except for Warren Buffett. Well, I believe he's the most successful investor of all time. Yes. And it's be it's because he gets something about investment. Like yeah. there, here's there's an intuition to it that Warren Buffett just gets that other people don't. And I honestly think it's because he's not one of these Silicon Valley dickheads. Yeah. He's not one of these old money weirdos. Yeah. He's a man. He's got a producer's mind. He's yeah. a man who can recognize a good idea. Yeah. Exactly. Two, understanding supply and demand. Warner had a keen understanding of supply and demand as Beanie Baby Fever took hold. Ty never disclosed specific sales figures, but rather than manufacture as many as possible, Warner would roll out each Beanie Baby variety in limited quantities, mm. only to retire them shortly thereafter. Oh, wow. Yeah. If you keep supply low, demand high goes higher. Yeah. Simple economics. Yeah. The strategy here, according to a 1996 Forbes article, is empty shelves. The deliberate creation of scarcity, which pumps up word-of-mouth demand to a frenzied level. <laughs> Warner knows that the harder his toys are to get, the more people will want them, and the longer the fad will last. Wow, this guy's brilliant. He's an interesting one. Yeah. Ty Warner is... I get the sense that he was surfing a wave that he did not expect to get this big. Right. But... I think he was the only person who could have turned Beanie Babies into what they became. Right. He's a real interesting character. He's got this, like, neurotic perfectionism to him. Right. It's He's an obsessive person in a way that I really haven't seen in any other episode we've done. Even the most passionate people. Like, even the, the Rainforest Cafe guy wasn't obsessive like Ty Warner is. Yeah. Wow. Just, I guess, what you kind of need to make Beanie Babel Babies successful. It really is. Yeah. It's 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 hard to pin down exactly what makes Ty Warner unique. Yeah. Because he really reads like a lot of these other guys. Right. But there's... It's almost like he thinks out of the box mm. in ways that no one else ever would have thought to conceptualize of selling a stuffed toy. Yeah. Right? Definitely. He's, he's applying shit to this that I don't think anybody else would really have been able to apply in this way at right. this time. Definitely. Consequently... That allowed many Beanie Babies to be considered collectibles, and although their popularity ultimately waned in the mid-2000s, driving the value of most Beanie Babies down to just 50 cents, dozens of the rarest versions are still estimated to be worth between $500,000 to $2,500. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> so that's like, it sold for $5, so that like a 10,000% increase? Yes. <laughs> right. Other industry titans launching retail products regularly use this approach. For example, many tech industry analysts speculated that Apple purposefully manufactured limited numbers of its Apple Watch, at least in part for the same reason ahead of its recent launch, although actual manufacturing bottlenecks were likely at play. Mm -hmm. This would make sense, as initial Apple Watch supplies largely sold out within minutes, 
when online pre-orders opened in April. Right. That sellout notably included limited quantities of the luxurious $20,000 Apple Watch edition models in China, which, apart from their limited bands and gold exteriors, contained the same internal components as the cheapest Apple Watch models. Right. Conspicuous consumption. Yeah, exactly. And also, the, like, the scarcity making it seem more valuable than it is. It's that it's that same psychological aspect to marketing that we touched on in the JCPenney episode. Right. If you know they're going to be gone... There's something about that psychologically that makes you want to buy it more. Yeah, it's the hunt. Yeah, it's, oh, it, I might not have another chance to get this. Right. Like, I don't want to be a fool and lose this opportunity exactly. to buy a gold Apple Watch. What if I do regret it? Yeah, right, exactly. There's that constant planting in the consumer's mind. Like, you might regret it later. Like, it might, you might, your li- life might be destroyed by this right. lack of, if you don't take this opportunity. But it might also be improved massively. You don't know. Yeah, exactly. The anxiety is eating you alive. <laughs> Better buy something. I need this Bobby Flay pasta maker shaped like an alligator. Don't get me started on Bobby Flay. <laughs> Man is a hack. He's not even a cook. He can <laughs> grill shit, but like every he never shows up to anyone who challenges yeah. him. There's a show called Beat Bobby Flay. I wish it was them actually beating him. <laughs> that would make me so happy. <sighs> this is not to say Apple Watch will be a fad. And I am certainly not implying Apple took direct cues on a well-known supply and demand <laughs> concept from Ty. Maybe. It's basic economics. I don't yeah. think they got the idea from Ty. <laughs> but if anything, these are perfect illustrations that combining clever marketing and inventory management with the right consumer-oriented product can yield staggeringly positive results. Right. Which is to say, if you're good at marketing, it helps your product. Yeah, makes there sense. You, there you go. Three. Finally... It is no mystery that Thai Toys has expanded from just Beanie Babies to create dozens of other varieties of plush toys, including well-known licensed product lines ranging from Hasbro's My Little Pony characters to Disney's Frozen franchise. Warner also struck other agreements from time to time, including recurring deals to include his toys in McDonald's Happy Meals. Yeah. Which, there's a good way to get your marketing hooks into children. Yeah. Exactly. But honestly, the McDonald's toys were adorable. They were like... I remember those. They were those tiny. little plastic, like, they were pouches. T- yeah, they were tiny versions of the normal Beanie Babies. It was yeah. super cute because yeah. tiny versions of normal things are inherently adorable. Yeah. <laughs> but if astutely expanding his product line and distribution wasn't enough, keep in mind that plush toys are not Ty Warner's only revenue stream. Mm. Warner has also amassed supplementary investments in real estate to form Ty Warner Properties, which currently encompasses several large hotels, resorts, ranches, and golf courses. Mm. Because that's basically the real endgame to all of this, is once you own land, you you never have to work again. It generates free profit and you don't have to do anything. Right, exactly. Congratulations, you've now graduated to a member of the ruling class. (laughs) Beanie Babies were your way in. Yeah, that's your up. Yeah. Welcome to being an absentee landlord. Yeah, exactly. And then once you get enough land, you can start buying senators. Yeah. That's the American dream. Right, and then you'll be happy. And then you'll finally be happy. <laughs> People will finally love you for who you are. Yeah. Get invited to the IRS Christmas party. Yeah, the clam bake. Yeah. The big IRS clam bake they have every year. Man, I hope I get invited this year. Pay your back taxes or the IRS <laughs> won't invite you to their wicked clam bake. <laughs> I love this conception of the IRS as like a bunch of beach frat bros. (laughs) Right. Who bake clams or something. (laughs) My uncle's got a condo we can hang out in (laughs) while we review your back taxes. (laughs) 
Hey bro, you all right? You ought to see like a debt consolidation agency. <laughs> we can get through this together, bro. Did you know that if you expand your home office, you're eligible for more tax breaks this year? Radical, dude! <laughs> but Ty Warner is not what Beanie Babies are known for, not by a long shot. Nine original Beanie Babies were launched in 1993. Legs the Frog, Squeeter the Pig, Spot the Dog, Flash the Dolphin, Splash the Whale, Chocolate the Moose, Patty the Platypus, Brownie the Bear, later renamed to Cubby, and Pinchers the Lobster, with some tags being printed as the error Punchers the Lobster. Feels like they were, they gave he gave his product team like 10 seconds to come up with the names of all of them. <laughs> they, all, they all sound like that. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Flash, Splash, uh, Pincher, uh, Joe, Brown, Blow, Co. This is Brown the dog. <laughs> he is brown. They were not in factory production t- until 1994, meaning... People were making them by hand. Oh, wow. (laughs) Yeah. Sales were slow at first, to the point that by 1995, many retailers refused to buy the products in the bundles that Ty offered them, while others outright refused to buy them in any form. Their popularity soon grew, however, first starting locally in Chicago before growing into a national craze in the USA. Wow. But what was it that turned them into that national craze? Hmm. What was the first domino here? I don't have a clue. On June 3rd, 1995, Ty Incorporated released a royal blue-colored Beanie Baby named Peanut the Elephant. The suburban Chicago small business had been selling the line of $5 animals for the past year and a half. Sales had been so poor that stores told Ty Warner, the company's owner, that they would only buy Beanie Babies six at a time (laughs) instead of in the 12-packs he was offering. He would pack them in boxes of 12 and they would say, you can have some of these back. Yeah. Even then, most buyers passed. Ty was unfazed. Quote, Most retailers don't even know what they're doing, he wrote in a note to an employee. When retailers get angry with you, it means you have a good product. I mean, maybe? That, this quote really summarizes Ty Warner for me. Because it's, he is the most driven person right. I have ever seen in this podcast. Yeah. None of that is true, Ty. Yeah, like, right. Retailers are trying to sell products, Ty. Right. They're not like jealous of, of you having a good product. They would sell it if they thought it was a good product. Right. They The whole point of having a retail business is to sell products. Yeah. They're very happy if you have a product that sells. Right. They're, They're incentivized not... to sell products they think are That's good. literally the point. Yeah. Like, <laughs> there's no other reason for them to show up, Ty. <sighs> but he never e- extrapolates on that. It's yeah. Like, why, why would they be angry that your Beanie Babies are not selling? Yeah. At first, Peanut did nothing to substantiate Warner's instincts. Entrepreneurs of lesser conviction might have moved on to their next idea, but Ty wasn't done. Not by a long shot. And this is something that we criticize people all the time for. It's like, yeah. know when to take the L. Yeah. Know when to bail out. Ty Warner is pathologically incapable of bailing out. (laughs) Four months after Peanut was released, Ty reached a decision. He would change her color, taking her fur from a royal blue to a baby blue. This change was part of the ethos that Warner's ex-girlfriend, Patricia Roche, Patricia Roche, who'd been with him when he started selling plush animals out of his condo in the mid-1980s, remembers as his, quote, never-ending striving for a perfect that doesn't exist. Warner once proclaimed that, quote, even perfection has room for improvement. (laughs) 
And Rochi remembers the eight hours that Warner once spent taking a photo of a single stuffed cat for his company's catalog. Well, I totally see what you're saying about the obsessiveness now. It is bordering on neuroses. Right. Like, even when I'm done, I'm not done. Yeah. Like, even if I've achieved, like, the most that I'll ever achieve, I still need to achieve more. The idea of even perfection can be improved upon is weirdly theological. It's like, what is more perfect than God? Yeah, exactly. Even God can be improved upon. And God's like, uh, guys? I want to, like, pick apart his this guy's mind. Yeah. It's like, what is your view of the universe? Yeah. Why are you like this? Right. Are, is your brain, like, different? Or you just like this? Yeah, <laughs> right. It's a little scary. But if this is... If this is a mental condition for him. Yeah. He seems like he's in a pretty good place for it, honestly. I, yeah. He has something constructive that he can obsess on. Ty Warner seems happy. Right. I mean, he's selling a product that's not doing any harm to anybody. You know, it's a cute mm. little stuffed animal. Exactly. In the case of Peanut, punctiliousness paid off. In the span of less than three years, the decision to change Peanut's color after only a few thousand royal blue ones had shipped would perhaps, more than any other decision he ever made, propel Warner from small-time toy baron to the richest man in the history of the industry. Wow. By the beginning of 1996, four months after Peanut's color had been changed, Beanie Babies were taking off as a popular toy in Chicago's northern suburb. Ty Inc. was shipping more than half of the Beanie Babies it sold to retailers within Illinois, and their popularity was spreading without the benefit of any advertising. That's insane. That's the dream. Yeah. That was unusual in an era when virtually all popular toys were promoted on television. In an embodiment of the consumerism-focused soccer mom culture that defined the 1990s in America, the collecting was quickly taken over by mothers. What had been a children's toy was to become, as Dave Barry put it in a 1998 column on the Beanie Craze, quote, an obsessive, grotesquely over-commercialized hobby, quote-unquote, with the same whimsy content as the Bataan Death March, which is when Japanese soldiers moved 60,000 American and Filipino prisoners of war during the Pacific Theater. Right. <laughs> and thousands died. That's an interesting comparison. It's a weirdly specific comparison. Yeah. <laughs> the world of hardcore collectors was tiny, geographically close-knit, and cult-like in its intensity. <laughs> as Malcolm Gladwell writes in The Tipping Point, fads and trends that are seen as spreading by word of mouth among the masses are often really ignited, quote, by the efforts of a handful of exceptional people. Mm. The four women and a few others were determined to accumulate complete sets of the animals before there were any publicly available information about the line. Mm. Quote, We were very busy trying to get each one, and we were trying to figure out what each one meant, remembers an early collector. I don't know if the Beanie Babies mean anything. Right, I think they're just selling stuffed animals, and, you know. It's just a stuffed elephant, my guy. Yeah, it's like, what does this represent? To figure out how many Beanie Babies there are, and get the ones that they couldn't find locally, along with extras to trade, the two Beckys, and Paula, and her sister Peggy, started calling gift shops all over the country. In a single month, Becky Phillips' long-distance phone bill surpassed $1,000. Sometimes, Peggy would reach a store, only to be told by a puzzled manager who'd only vaguely heard of Beanie Babies that the inventory had been sold over the phone to a mysterious buyer from Illinois. <laughs> She came in like a twister, <laughs> picked up all the beanie babies and vamoosed over the horizon. 
a rival emerges. This is like two like rival archaeologists trying to discover Seriously. some like ancient dinosaur or something. It's like a spy movie. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Who is this X? Mysterious callers calling Illinois toy distribution warehouses about their inventory. Yeah. Dr. Jones. To figure out how many Beanie Babies there were, and to get the one... Oh, I just read that. Fuck! Damn it! Shit! Kill me! Quote, All the people who were driving this lived within ten miles of each other, remembers Mary Beth Slobolowski. What is it about this area that's, like, driving people to this? I don't know. It seems like... The fact that they all lived so close makes me think that it was like one bridge club gone wrong. Right. That this is this is a tragedy of friends torn asunder. Yeah. You know? They all got into Beanie Babies at the same time, but the competition was just too much for them. <laughs> Tore them apart. Yeah. Now they have dartboards with each other's faces on it. <laughs> right. As they reminisce in their high school yearbooks. Right. A friend of Peggy Gallagher's who became the editor for a million copy per month Beanie Baby collecting magazine. The growth of Beanie Babies into a national phenomenon can be traced to these four women. The first major story on Beanie Babies ran in People. It was written by Joni Blackman, who heard about Beanie Babies from her neighbor, Becky Phillips. The creator of the first most successful Beanie collecting website was a Virginia mother named Sarah Nelson. But she first heard about Beanie Babies when her friend moved to suburban Chicago and came back to visit with stories about the craze for Beanie Babies emerging on her block. Becky Phillips was that woman's neighbor too. Spreading like a virus. It's all connected! <laughs> it's like that, like the cork board with like the red, the red wire. wire. Yeah. <laughs> wait, wait, if we just rearrange this and the newspaper clipping is here. Oh my God, it's Becky. <laughs> Which one? It's Becky Phillips! They're all named Becky! She's the key to all of this! The government has been growing clones of Becky Phillips <laughs> in their secret lab under Chicago! We are all Becky. Give us Peanut the Elephant. <laughs> As the early collectors called stores in faraway states to ask about Beanie Babies, they started to notice that there were a few varieties that were especially hard to find. Rarest of all, was the royal blue peanut. Mm. The crown jewel. Yeah. Beanie Babies had become a craze in the Chicago suburbs, and local and then national collectibles dealers and magazines started to cover it. In, the early, in early 1996, Peggy Gallagher wrote the first magazine piece on the animals for a collectibles magazine called Rosie's Collector's Bulletin, which that's just like some neighborhood paper or something. Yeah. She emphasized the rare pieces, especially Peanut, and their rising value, and included her address where collectors could send a, an SASE to receive her price guide. But Peggy's price guide was actually came before there was a well-organized market for Beanie Babies. In many cases, she just made the values up. <laughs> Speculation bubble. You can see the dominoes falling yeah. into place. Oh, God. She watched in elation as the market moved up to reflect the prices she'd concocted. She'd made up arbitrary numbers. Just made them the fuck up and just watched God. as the market swelled. By 1997, a New Jersey father's self-published price guide pegged Peanut's value at $2,500. The book predicted that it would be worth $7,500 by 2008. That price guide, the, BB, the Beanie Baby Handbook, sold more than 3 million copies to become one of the best-selling self-published books of all time. Now, there's a lot of people in this country who can't afford their rent. <laughs> Literally, exactly. 
An ad in Mary Beth's Beanie World extolled the importance of purchasing hard-shell plastic lock lockets to protect the animal's heart-shaped paper bags that read, quote, safety precaution, please remove all swing tags. It led with this headline, quote, how do you protect an investment that increases by 8,400%? On the left, with her trunk flowing off the page, was Peanut. So this woman was selling lockets that would protect the uh, the tags, like the little heart shaped tags right. on the Beanie Babies. So it's like a little a little plastic locket that keeps it mint condition, right? Which is basically the fucking candy bar bag carrying case. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> the tulip mania of 1630s Holland had its Semper Augustus bulb. Yeah, I was actually just thinking of that. And the tech stock bubble had the stories of vast riches and early IPOs. For Beanie Babies, it all began with Peanut the Royal Blue Elephant. A stuffed animal had appreciated in value by a factor of a thousand. And that was a story that could spread. The Chicago Tribune explained it, quote, Start talking beanies, and just about everybody knows somebody who's financed a wedding, a vacation, a new van, or what have you with the proceeds of beanie sales. Just about everyone knows someone like that? I guess. God, that's crazy. Really? It's like, you can see it. You can see the parallels to the tulip panic yeah, almost immediately. Like, it, it, it filtered into normal society. It yeah. became like a common thing. Right. And people were just having, like, Beanie Baby cruises. Exactly. Like, beanie Baby trips to Hawaii. Pay for a car with Beanie Babies. Right. The Beanie Market's self-styled experts stoked the idea that... In the new Beanie Babies Ty was releasing every few months, there existed specimens that would experience the same appreciation patterns of peanut. The Beanie prognosticators operated on the same way that analyst Harry Blojet, who correctly predicted in October of 1998 that Amazon's stock would soar by two-thirds in less than a year, used the credibility of his early success to promote newer companies with more dubious prospects. <laughs> so, just because you get one good call doesn't mean you're an umpire, my guy. Right. After Beanie Babies caught on, the Chinese factories started pumping them out in huge quantities. Although Ty's decision to sell his animals through small, independently owned stores masked just how many were being made, because no store held more than a couple dozen of each style. Mm. Smart. Yeah. Quote, People don't understand that the ones people were making $800 on really are rare, says uh, Paula Abrinko, the doctor who'd been among the first aggressive collectors. Quote, By the time they had heard the people making money, the really hot ones were all gone. By mid-1998, all the earliest Chicago collectors were sitting on six-figure fortunes. Abrinko quietly sold a few of her rarest beanies and used the proceeds to adopt her first child. <laughs> Literally. I will give you these beanie babies for a child. <laughs> funding a human child with the sale of the beanie baby. Now that I have enough startup capital and beanie babies to purchase a child. Right. When do you know when a, when a speculation bubble has got, gotten too far? <laughs> her sister, Peggy, celebrated her beanie winnings with a new Mercedes and a vanity plate that read, Bee Babies. <laughs> It's a little on the nose, A little Peggy. on the nose, Peggy. <laughs> As the beanie market reached its apex, latecomers made the worst investments of their lives. Jeez. Here we go. All right. A former soap opera star poured his kids' six-figure college funds into hoarding more than 15,000 Beanie Babies after a store owner showed him a price guide predicting ever-soaring values. That is so stupid. 
the Beanie Babies he staked out Hallmark stores in search of were too overproduced to ever be scarce. Right. And the collection is, 16 years later, worth almost nothing. Right. If you buy 15,000 of something, it's, it can't be worth that much. Exactly. Right. Like, exactly. It's mass produced. It's the whole reason that collectibles have value is because they're scarce yeah. and hard to find. Right. If you can get 15,000 of something, it doesn't seem like it's fucking hard to find, my guy. Right. Unless it's like gold bars. And even even then, if you have too much gold in one... Like, if you have too much gold circulating in one economic space, mm-hmm. it crashes the value of the fucking gold. Right. That's that's what happened uh, for, with fucking uh, Mansa Musa. You right. heard that story? Mm. Right? So the Empire of Mali has one of the richest gold mines on Earth mm-hmm. at the time. Gold is ex- exceedingly common there. Yeah. And Mansa Musa, this... Um, this African this African ruler wants to make his mark on civilized world yeah. by making the Hodge, and he makes the most fucking pimp ass Hodge in history. Right. Tens of thousands of camel trains, cut, like bringing servants and gifts, like, yeah. and he just rolls through the entire Islamic world in stunning array. Yeah, and he pays with. He pays for everything he needs on his trip with gold dust because yeah. it's so common. But it's super fucking valuable in the rest of the world. Like yeah. as he passes through Egypt, as he passes through the markets of Cairo, yeah. he spends so much money. He spends so much gold buying, you know, just cool shit in Cairo yeah. that on the way back from on the way back from Mecca, the entire Cairo market space is in disarray because <laughs> the value of gold was had crashed while he was away. <laughs> And so, to solve the problem, he basically just rolled. He basically just rolled up to um, the current financial institutions in Cairo and just paid all of their debts. Right. <laughs> yeah. Sorry about As that. As a sorry, because he had that much fucking yeah. money. Right. And that's gold. And this that's, is Beanie Babies. And this is fucking Beanie Babies. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, so there's no Mansa Musa for Beanie Babies. <laughs> You just realize your dad, your dumb dad, staked your entire college fund on Beanie Babies because one guy showed him a pamphlet once. Because you're one of the select few in this country whose parents can actually give you a college fund, right. and you are incredibly lucky. And then you realize it's now gone because your dad was like a flashy salesman at some gift shop, flashed the Beanie Babies some price guide, Hallmark store. Yeah. <laughs> And then dollar signs appeared in your dad's eyes. <laughs> I can make more money from this college fund. I'll flip it. Yeah. I'm going to flip your college fund, son. <laughs> God. Because it's just a slap in the face. Right. And now you have to go into debt like the yeah. rest of the working class right. plebs. <laughs> now you have to be a regular person. Uh, what beasts humans be. <laughs> it's a new tagline of the podcast. In West Virginia, a sawmill worker murdered a a colleague over a Beanie Baby debt. No. And in Las Las Vegas, a pair of divorcees divided up their soon-to-be worthless Beanie collection on the floor of a courthouse under the supervision of a judge and bailiff. And in the article, there's a picture of it. It's not, like, it is the most undignified picture. (laughs) Like, the... The only way I can really describe the atmosphere of this image is depraved. 
It reminds me of like when I brought 300 Paramount DVDs and poured them on the floor of my house. But that was like that was like a bacchanal. Yeah. Right. right. That was that, <laughs> that was a celebration of excess. Yeah. Right. So it was it's this image of a, a collection of beanie babies, right? Yeah. And it's it is a stark, blank Las Vegas courthouse yeah. with 1970s faux wood paneling that is visibly peeling. The the lights are are low and dim and yellow. Yeah. It bathes everything in this Lynchian, like almost rotting atmosphere. Yeah. And the collection of Beanie Babies is not organized. It's not in. It's not in boxes. It's not in a big. Oh, I was tub. picturing like a bunch of boxes. It's not in boxes. <laughs> it's not even on a table. They cleared. They cleared a space in front of the judge's stand and poured the pile of Beanie Babies on the floor. And this man and woman are on opposite sides of the courtroom on their knees, crawling and taking Beanie Babies one by one and adding them to the meager little pile in front of them. I mean, finally, the court system is exposed for the true circus it is. I get it's like... I, there is there are no words for this. Yeah, it's just right. if you put if you put that in a movie, it would be too much. Yeah, it's like okay, guys, I know you're trying to go for satire, but it's a little ridiculous. It's it's like it is whatever the exact opposite of a Norman Rockwell painting is, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right? It's like this is the kind of event that spawns new evil psychic creatures. <laughs> yeah. Like this event created evil ghosts, right? <laughs> How are ordinary, responsible people susceptible to the financial speculation that is so absurd in hindsight? Thousands of years of evolution have left us with brains that are on the constant prowl for patterns, for hunters and gatherers. It was a valuable talent, recognizing that the sound of a lion rustling in the grass often preceded a violent attack that could be the difference between a violent death and passing on your genes. On the other hand, there was often little consequence to overreacting to an illusory pattern. As economist Daniel Kahneman puts it in Thinking Fast and Slow, the tendency to see patterns in randomness is overwhelming. This instinct that is helpful in most situations is spectacularly dangerous in our financial lives. Yeah. That's putting it lightly. Yeah. A willingness to extrapolate the rising price of peanut into optimism about the appreciation potential of newer Beanie Babies drove speculators to financial ruin. Story as old as time. Yeah. When it comes to financial decisions, this zeal to see patterns is amplified by the way we experience the world socially. Twenty years before Peanut, the economist Charles Kindleberger explained this phenomenon in his book Manias, Panics, and Crashes, A History of Financial Crises. There is nothing so disturbing to one's well-being and judgment as to see a friend get rich. Yeah. I, That's a great quote. I fucking love that quote. Yeah. Can get rich too? Friend can get rich? Can get rich too? <laughs> The next time you find yourself tempted by stories of spectacular investment track records, upward sloping charts, and growth rates, ask yourself, is investing in this really any smarter than stocking up on Gigi the Poodle because somebody told you he got rich with Peanut the Royal Blue Elephant? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, by the time people are telling you that they got rich off of this ridiculous investment, it's, it's too, too late. late. It's already too right. late. So why did people flip out? In July of 1999, I traveled with my family to Tenby, Wales. The town is said to be picturesque, but I have no memory of its scenery, except for 
a small toy store we passed in our drive-in. As we settled into our hotel, my sister and I begged our father to trek to the shop and search for the Britannia Beanie Baby. Sold exclusively in the United Kingdom, the Britannia Bear wasn't just a toy, we explained. It was an investment projected to be worth thousands of dollars within a decade. Our father capitulated and brought us each a Britannia bear, which we dutifully kept in mint condition with the tag intact, reveling in its rarity, while dreaming of the day it would become a hugely valuable collector's item. One month later, the company that developed Beanie Babies abruptly announced that it would stop producing the toys at the end of the year, both <laughs> anticipating and precipitating the burst of the Beanie Baby bubble. Smart move on Ty Warner's part. Hmm. He saw this fucking coming. Yeah. Sellers panicked. <laughs> Buyers lost interest, and by the start of the new millennium, Beanie Babies had swung from an economic and cultural phenomenon to a tired punchline. <laughs> Today, the Britannia Bear sells for $10 on eBay. Oh, man. Well, it's a, it's a 100% increase. Yeah, it's more than five. Yeah. Wait, 100% increase? You mean we can double our money by investing in Beanie Babies, Evan? <laughs> right. Let's do it. Go, go, go. <laughs> My own Britannia lies buried in, the, in a box in the back of my closet, along with hundreds of other Beanie Babies, where it sat untouched for 15 years. And you don't even get to play with it. Like, it's so sad. Right. Like, I, maybe you played with it a little bit, and then you're just older now. But I'm just saying that people buy... The whole point of stuffed animals is to bring joy to children who can yeah. play with something. Right, but, yeah. Like, adults are buying it to keep in a box. Like... It's just sad, because they think they're going to get rich from it. Right. This is the box that makes things valuable. Yeah. From this distance, it's easy to laugh at Beanie Baby Fever, to mock it as just another pointless fad in a chintzy, hollow decade. But the latter part of the 1990s, Beanie Babies were so much more than a fad. They were a mania, an obsession, that ensnared not just gullible children, but also otherwise responsible adults who lost all sense of perspective over these plush playthings. Yeah. People sold and bought some rare Beanie Babies for over $5,000 each and expected others to skyrocket in value within a decade. Collectors were very careful to keep each toy's tag attached and protected by a plastic case. A Beanie Baby's worth was said to fall by 50% once the tag was removed, which I'm 99% sure is just a bullshit thing yeah, that, right. the, that, like... That original lady invented. Right. Some some Becky said that. Yeah, yeah. It's like and then it just became like law. Right. It it became it became mandate from heaven. Yeah. Looking back, it's clear that the Beanie Baby craze was an economic bubble, fueled by frenzied speculation and blatant baseless optimism. Bubbles are quite common, but bubbles over toys are not. Why did America lose its mind over stuffed animals? I don't know. Zach Bissonnette's new book, The Great Beanie Baby Bubble, does an excellent job explaining the base economic factors behind Beanie's success. Ty Warner, the mastermind behind the toys, had a remarkable talent for manipulating supply and demand. He's also a borderline recluse and a profoundly troubled man, among other things. Warner repeated, repeatedly dated the same woman as his father at the same time and became a plastic surgery addict. Oh, well, there you go. Yeah! <laughs> I, I was waiting for that. It's, you never know with Ty Warner. Yeah, right. But it seems like, it seems like in, if he were just like half a percent different, he would be a serial killer. Right. It's better than, to, it's better. It's better this way. Yeah. To date the same woman as your father, I guess, than While to you're... murder people. Is being in a polycule with your dad <laughs> incest? 
God, there's, I don't know if you saw this click hole thing that came out. It was like fake tweets from Nick Jonas. Oh, and it was yeah. like, it was like a fake thread of like, is it weird that I'm in a band that sings about sexy girls with my brothers? Is that incest? It's probably not, right? But it's just kind of weird that like my job is to sing about sexy girls with my brothers all day. <laughs> He's like, goes on this long thread, like questioning everything. I think this is a little different than that. No, but it just reminded me. <laughs> I love those fake onion tweets. Yeah. My favorite is like, it was a, you gotta cut, you gotta cut through the bullshit. You gotta look at your life and figure out what really matters to you. Shigeru Miyamoto unbeating World 4-2. (laughs) First, Warner understuffed his toys so that they were flexible and looked real. Second, he sold only small batches of each new Beanie Baby to independent businesses. Specifically to independent businesses. No big box stores. Mm. No, no Toys R Us. Only small retailers. Right. Third, Warner retired, quote-unquote, every animal after a fairly short amount of time, introducing a new toy in its stead. Mm -hmm. This strategy created a near hysteria every time a Beanie Baby was released, sending fans rushing out to local stores to buy the new toy before supplies disappeared forever. So Ty Warner basically figured out the rhythm to it, right? Yeah. It's this idea of how long do you hold the bait out there, and when do you reel it back in, Right. right? You, and he's, he seemed to figure out the sort of pattern for just constantly keeping people at that, that most energetic phase, that yeah. most panicked, like, I need to get it phase. Right. All of this explains in simple market terms how Warner manipulated supply and demand to build a frenzy for his product. But Bissonnette's book is disappointingly short on psychological explanations for why Americans were eager to shell out at least hundreds of millions of dollars for a rather conventional toy. Mm. The total spent on Beanie Babies is unclear because the ever-secretive Warner refused to release his company's earnings. In one sardonic message, Bissonnette cites Sigmund Freud's belief that, quote, the root of collecting lies in sex and toilet training as the collector directs his surplus libido into an inanimate object, a love of things. Which, like everything Sigmund Freud says, is complete bullshit. Yeah, right. But I like the... It's kind of... Fun to think about. Yeah. The idea that the Beanie Baby crazed is caused by repressed horniness. Right. Well, I, I don't think it's horniness, but it's caused by re- a repressed something. Like, it's it's taking energy that could be sub- going somewhere else and putting it in this thing. I, I think that's definitely an element of it, but I think at the root of it, it's just this weird psychological hook that marketing can get into you. Yeah. It's... It's exploiting a... It's exploiting, like, a monkey brain thing. Yeah. But it ties, like... It definitely blends with the consumerism in a sort of obsessive... My life is hollow and meaningless, and the only thing that makes me feel any emotions anymore is getting excited over purchasing Beanie Babies. Right. That's definitely a part of it. Especially yeah. for the northern the northern Chicago suburbs in 1998. Yeah, like one neighborhood. Bissonnette also hypothesizes that collecting Beanie Babies reflects a, quote, a regression into soothing and comfort provided by objects during childhood, and that the acquisition of a scarce, valued item activates our endorphins. Which, I think so. I think... It definitely activates our endorphins. Like yeah. we get we get a rush when we buy something. That's just a thing. Yeah. Because we're we're requiring a new thing. Yeah. Hooray, stimulus. Right. But I I don't know if Beanie like the infantile softness, as it were, of Beanie Babies factors into the psychology of it. Yeah. I think it's really just the fact that it was an investment bubble. Yeah. Because I mean, there was the tulip panic didn't have any of those elements to it. And 
it took off. Yeah. It's just, I think, timing. It's like, it doesn't really matter what it is. It just happened to be Beanie Babies. Right, right. It was just the right marketing strategy at the right time. And yeah. it just really sunk its hooks into these four specific Chicago women. Yeah, seriously. While Freudian theory hasn't held up well to scientific analysis, some sort of mental disturbance might be account for the more extreme cases of Beanie Baby addiction. Mm. Like the retired soap opera star who lost his, his children's six-figure college fund into investing the toys, or to the man who committed murder over what a, defect, a detective described as a, quote, Beanie Baby deal gone bad. <laughs> this is one of the worst Beanie Baby deal crimes I've seen in years. How many of these have you seen? At least six. <laughs> but does it really explain what sent millions of Americans, soccer moms and CEOs alike, uh, utterly bonkers over a brand of plush stuffed animals? A paper by David Tuckett and Richard Taffler, two economics professors with training in psychoanalytical theory, suggest Bisonet's conjecture isn't that far off. Tuckett and Taffler specifically examined the dot-com bubble, but their theory applies to all modern bubbles. According to The Economist, humans occasionally view exciting new creations as, quote, like, fantastic objects with a PH, mm. as in, like, phantasms, like yeah. ghosts, which overwhelm us and skew our sense of reason. Our brains begin to tell us that by obtaining these magical objects, we will achieve some profound level of satisfaction, something yeah. akin to transcendence. The thrill of the chase then muffles our ability to rationally evaluate the actual worth of an object, and others' willingness to go along with our fantasy reinforces our suspension of logic. Mm. Right? It's exactly that earlier quote of there's nothing more damage, damaging to your psychology than seeing your friend get rich. Right. right? Because now it's a fad. Yeah. And this shows up in Marxist theory, actually. It's the idea of commodity fetishism. Mm. The ascribing of supernatural properties to a commodity. Right. Of like, this is what will make me happy. Yeah, if I just get all of them. Kind right. Of well, and the idea that it's grounded in psychology as like, like if you're just a random hunter-gatherer human, seeing these like brightly colored small animals just sort of does something in your monkey brain mm. of like, ooh, stimulus, new fun object. Right. Like I must explore. Yeah. Maybe fun. Yeah. I have these things. Me? Have them? But then that blends with modern consumerist culture into the whole idea of like, this is what will finally make me happy. <laughs> Beanie babies. All this theorizing may sound like so much argle-bargle, I love that, <laughs> but the meat of Tuckett and Taffler's thesis builds on a famous theory of bubbles by renowned economist Charles Kindleberger. According to him, every bubble has four basic stages, a grand new development that shocks the market, euphoria, over that development, a sudden boom in sales and speculation, and eventually, panic when the bubble bursts. Mm, yep. Yeah. I think that's, like, now you know the warning signs. Yeah, right. A grand new development... Like, uh, a big unveiling, yeah. right? Euphoria over that development. Like, uh, you know, big media blitz or whatever. Yeah. A boom in sales, and then panic when it bursts. Well, that's why it's good to study these things. So mm -hmm. you can watch out for them and not lose your kid's college fund on Beanie Babies. <laughs> God. Tuckett and Taffler approve of Kindleberger's model, adding a coda revulsion to describe the collective hangover society experiences when it, has, when it realizes it's invested in junk, i.e., why Beanie Babies are a joke now. Yeah. In the Kindleberger model, with the Tuckett and Taffler twist, which sounds like a wrestling move, yeah. Beanie Babies are a kind of magical object whose plush perfection captured the imagination of small subset of early adopters. Soon, Beanie Baby collectors sprang up to spread the toy's transcendent joy, and then everybody needed each new Beanie Baby to complete his or her collection. But Warner limited the number of each animal produced, 
leading both buyers and sellers scrambling to purchase new releases and, in the process, wildly overvaluing their worth, right? Mm. Ramping up demand. Eventually, the fantasy faded. For most people, after all. Beanie Babies do not bring about Nirvana, and the bubble burst. Buyers lost interest, sellers struggled to offload their surpluses, and the whole country felt rather gross about fixating on stuffed animals. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. <laughs> they learned. Andrew Odlaisko, a mathematician and bubble expert, proposes a simpler theory, explaining speculative panics in a study on the British railway mania of the 1940s. Odlaisko credits railway mania in part to a, quote, collective hallucination, an extreme form of groupthink, as it were, wherein a significant chunk of society feverishly buys into a shared dream with no regard for skeptics and naysayers. Some scholars think Jesus' resurrection may have been an acute instance of collective hallucination, which is it's like a super fucking edgy thing to add to this article, right? guy. <laughs> yeah, you're going to some uh, dangerous places there. It's like when people say, like, the most popular nonfiction book ever printed, except, of course, for the Bible. <laughs> <laughs> ah! Just pee their pants so hard. Oh, their like hole rips through their jeans. Oh, my God. I hate people using the word groupthink in contexts like this. It's yeah. like, st you're diluting the... You sound like a conspiracy theorist, my guy. It's like, yeah, why are you bringing it in this direction? Right. The existence of groupthink has been confirmed in a rich assortment of studies, and Odlaisko's theory expands on the idea to economic bubbles. Under his analysis, the initial coterie of Beanie Baby collectors comp comprised an in-group that shared the great secret of Beanie Baby's worth. As most people discovered the toy, they yearned to learn this secret and partake in the impending financial success of the Beanie Babies market. Soon, millions of Americans were gripped by this conviction that they had discovered an easy path to personal wealth, and thanks to their collective hallucination of Beanie Babies' worth, none of these collectors ever realized that the only thing driving the Beanie Babies' market was their own conviction that the toys were valuable. Yeah. I think there's something to that. Yeah. The idea that, like, there's this knot of, like, suburban Chicago and white women yeah. who are, who are, like the ascendant masters at the center yeah. of this secretive cabal, and they know what's happening, and we're just on the edge. We're just on the edges, but if we just focus a little more, we can plumb the secret depths of the Beanie Baby world. Yeah. These theories may explain the mass delusions that enabled a large chunk of the country to believe that a $5 Beanie Baby could eventually be worth thousands, but what they never quite get at, however, is that the initial spark of fascination, how the ineffable appeal of Beanie Babies turned them, and not one of the thousand other 1990s trends, into a collective mania. That allure can probably never be quantified. Yeah. And I think that's true, but I wouldn't... I honestly wouldn't call it a delusion. I think this is just how human psychology works. Yeah. It's just how economics works. Right. If, if other people think something is valuable, it's valuable. That's right. how value works. Right. You're being told that this will be valuable. It's not like people are telling you this is not valuable and you're hallucinating that it is. It's like you genuinely believe you're going to make a ton of money off of Right. This. It's like if, if you can trade somebody a large amount of money for a thing, it has value. It's valuable. Yeah. <laughs> the value of the product is not a delusion. The delusion is the idea that it'll last. Right. Or it'll, specifically with bubbles, it's the idea that it'll keep going up. Yeah. That never happens. Right. There's always an end point. But those who once loved Beanie Babies may still remember it. I certainly do. Because I remember when I got my first Beanie Baby. I was seven. I had just woken up from an, uh, from an adenoidectomy surgery to see a family friend through the anesthesia haze. She leaned over my bed and laid Bruno the Bull Terrier on my head. I grabbed Bruno, closed my eyes as the room started spinning, and threw up. Wait, she laid it on his head after he had adenoid surgery? Yeah, just like on the top of his head. Like, oh. <laughs> 
I'm just like, be careful of his head right now. Yeah. Bruno stayed with me through my convalescence, and long after I lost interest in Beanie Babies, he remained perched on my nightstand. There was something sweet and comforting and innocent about him, something so tender and gentle and warm. Bruno was the kind of toy Ty Warner was trying to make for children when he accidentally created a speculative mania for adults. Yeah. In 2013, Warner pled guilty to tax evasion <laughs> after admitting to hiding millions of dollars in a Swiss bank account. Oh, man. He was sentenced to probation, but may face years of prison time if the Justice Department's appeal is successful. Bruno the Bull Terrier Dog now sits at the back of my closet with hundreds of other floppy, forlorn toys. Today, he sells for 36 cents, with the tag still attached. Oh, man. So where are they now, right? Like, what happened to all these people that spent so much on Beanie Babies? Yeah. Is the Beanie Baby community even still around? Well, the Beanie Baby craze has been over for about two decades now, but eBay is still full of listings for the plush animals. And the now vintage collectibles come with some pretty wild price tags. <laughs> some apparently rare Beanie Babies are listed on eBay for prices north of half a million dollars. What? With one seller asking six, $660,000 for a set of two Princess Diana special edition bears. And other sellers regularly posting Beanie Babies with prices in the tens of thousands. Do they actually get sold? Like, I would wonder. Some jaw-dropping prices, to be sure. But is anyone buying? Not at those amounts. Yeah, right. <laughs> Says, You'd never be stupider than the people in the bubble were. Dr. Lori Verdemain, an antiques appraiser who often deals with Beanie Baby collectors, she wants people to remember that the prices listed on eBay do not necessarily reflect an item's value. Oftentimes, people will um, put things on eBay that they don't that they have no intention of selling at crazy prices, mm. so that so that they can inflate the value of the the things they actually want to sell, right. so that people will like, oh, I wonder how much this is selling for online. <gasps> Right. Point six million dollars. Right. Wow, I'd be getting a deal on this if you sold if I only bought it for twenty. Right. Quote, you see these tremendous numbers, and they're listed, and then you see the sales records, and it's completely different, she told Today yeah. Home. Many of these sites are not indicative at all of the market. Mm. Take the Princess Diana Bear, a special edition item created to raise money for the Diana Princess of Wales Memorial Fund. Several of those bears have six-figure price tags on eBay, yeah. but the actual sales price doesn't match up. One recently sold for $4, <laughs> another for 17 another for 135 The special edition Valentino Bear follows the same pattern. Sellers are listing them for $20,000 or more, but they often end up selling for under 10 with one recent Valentino selling for just 99 cents. Jeez. That's not to say that certain beanies aren't valuable, but they are rare, and it takes an appraiser to identify them. Mm. Some of them can be valuable with certain factors in place, so the condition is excellent. Hasn't been used, touched, played with, certain tags, certain materials used. They might be worth well into the thousands or tens of thousands, yes, yeah. Verdemain said. But this million-dollar stuff, I have not seen credible sales records to support that. Also, the few truly valuable beanies are not the ones people typically have in their attics, says Zach Bissonnette. The ones that are worth hundreds of dollars will never be the ones that you have, Bison right. told today. Yeah. Peanut the Royal Blue Elephant, for instance, was manufactured in very limited qualities, likely fewer than 5,000 ever shipped before the color was changed to light blue. These early prices that still have value were discontinued before Beanie Babies found a mass market, he said. Right. They, were, they were being collected back then, really by just a handful of women in the Chicago suburbs. He warns people not to succumb to the hype that still surrounds Beanie Babies on auction still sites like sounds, That's crazy. <laughs> Don't do it. Like, if you haven't learned by now, then, like, it's, there's no hope yeah, for you. Yeah, there's no hope for you. <laughs> Quote, in general, don't pay a lot of money for Beanie Baby, and never give money to somebody who says they'll help you sell yours, he said. 
don't involve yourself in this. Get out while you get out while you haven't put a foot in yet. Yeah. Ask no more questions. Vertimain recommends that if people want to know their collection is worth anything, they should take it to an appraiser who deals with Beanie Babies. An appraiser can point to other places where, quote, comparable prices have actually been sold, including toy collectors and certain websites. Right. She herself has appraised her share of Beanie Babies and has noticed a recent surge of interest in the plush collectibles coinciding with the 20th anniversary of the 90s Beanie Baby mania. There's been a big revival within the last three years, she told today. A big revival of truly active collectors who really want them and will pay a lot of money for them compared to what they paid for originally. And there have been a lot of folks who have said, quote, We're going to start up in the clubs. We're going to start the trade again. Great. Good idea. Speculation bubble too. <laughs> so who knows? Maybe there's another mini Beanie Babies craze in the works. But even if you don't have any valuable ones, Bisonette recommends thinking of them as a fun piece of 90s nostalgia. Yeah. Quote, Enjoy your Beanie Babies, he said. <laughs> they're cute. They're fun. They make kids smile. And what's more valuable than that? In a short documentary entitled Bankrupt by Beanies, Chris Robinson, the film's director, details his family's regret after sinking about $100,000 into the Beanie Baby craze. God. His father maintained five separate collections, hoping the, quote, investment would put his his kids through college. Unfortunately, that never happened. The Beanie Bubble, like so many fads for it, ultimately burst, leaving the family in financial ruin. These reflections are are moving reminders as to why investors should be wary of fads at the moment. We're looking at you, Bitcoin. (laughs) And that basically wraps up our episode. But! Evan, okay, I have a challenge for you. Okay. In the 1998 edition of the Scholastic Beanie Baby Handbook, uh, listed the original price of Beanie Babies when they were first released, how much they sold for in 1998, and their estimated price for 2008. So, I want you to guess. I'm going. I have a couple Beanie Babies here, okay. and I want you to guess. Uh, by their 1998 issue prices and their 2008 prices, what their current prices are. Okay. Okay. So, Stripes the Dark Tiger, a misprint of a normal tiger, <laughs> right? So the issue price, $5. In 1998, speculated at, at 250 In 2008, speculated at 1000 What's your guess for uh, Stripes the Dark Tiger in 2020? It's like an official appraiser estimate of what it's yeah of what it's worth yeah yeah two hundred dollars ten dollars <laughs> okay seaweed the otter issue price seven dollars 1998 seven dollars 2008 sixty dollars what's the 2020 price 25 cents three dollars <laughs> okay teddy the violet bear Issue price five dollars, nineteen ninety-eight, a thousand dollars, two thousand and eight, five thousand dollars. What's the twenty twenty price? Twenty dollars. Seven hundred dollars, actually. <laughs> oh okay. Right. I have no idea why, but there you go. <laughs> it's gold plated or something. I don't know. Alright, and that basically wraps up our episode. Alright, that was crazy. Thank you for listening, everyone. Thanks for listening. We love you. We love you. Big things are coming. Have a great week. Big things are coming.
If you like what you heard, follow us on Twitter at D-A-O-C-Cast, Instagram at Desperate Acts of Capitalism, and Tumblr at DesperateActsOfCapitalism.tumblr.com. And remember, next week's episode is up right this moment on our Patreon. Join us there for bonus content, including an entire second podcast, Business Desserts, where Evan and I talk about current business news and whatever we feel like talking about that week. And thank you so much for listening. We love you. Big things are coming.